Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the CityWire Selector Podcast. This is our third outing and the first to take place on home soil. In this month's encounter, I sat down with Ian Aylward. Ian was brought on board by Barclays Wealth and Investment Management in mid-2016 to steer its fund and manager selection efforts. From the unique vantage point of Barclays' giant Canary Wharf head offices, we talked through his current thinking, his alternative ideas, and the one thing he wishes companies had known before MIFID II became a force to be reckoned with. So there's plenty to sink your teeth into, and as always, if you have any ideas, thoughts, or suggestions, please contact us on the CityWire Selector team. You can do that through me at cslowly at citywire.co.uk. Enjoy. Well, thank you for joining me, and I should say thank you for letting me join you, because we're here in Canary Wharf. It's coming to the end of the first quarter. Mm-hmm. It's been quite a hectic time. We saw the bond sell off at the start. We've seen recent movements, especially around the tech stocks, with everything that's happened with Facebook in the last few weeks. But it's in- always interesting to get a view of where we are from a selector perspective mm-hmm. rather than the fund manager perspective. So what's dominated your agenda over the first quarter? Yeah, so we've been pleased to be positioned constructively for risk assets, so uh, we've, we've weathered the volatility we've seen well as a firm, so our asset allocation um, has added value for clients, and we've had um, our managers have an exceptionally strong period actually, really, um, as a collective, across both fixed income and equities, have delivered in, in Q1. I think that reflects um, at least two things, you know, the volatility has come back into markets to a degree, and that's allowed differentiation between stocks and then the managers to, to add value to their stock selection and also you know a number of the managers had been more cautious and defensive given where valuations had got to and so you know those those wobbles and correction in certain markets was um, beneficial to the relative performance of our managers so you know so far so good this year although we're still only three months in what the challenge has been because as we spoke beforehand MIFID 2 has that's finally come onto the table and it is something that a lot of people had to deal with. I said anecdotally about what we heard at our Madrid event that it's mm. tough but manageable. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment? Yes, yeah, I, I think so. It's, um, I think in the long term, certainly a positive, um, certainly more transparency in markets. Um, but in the short term, there's still some teething problems. I would identify, I think, three key areas for us as fund selectors when it comes to dealing with MIFID uh, two. The first one is the removal of soft commissions. So when uh, trading, now one needs to split out the cost of research and pay for that explicitly rather than it being wrapped up in the commissions. Um, That impacts us in in two ways at Barclays. One, we've had to look at the sell-side providers that we take for research. We take that because it helps us question managers and understand uh, their views, uh, question their views. Um, So we've trimmed down the providers that we take that self-serve research for, and of course we're having to pay for that ourselves now as Barclays. And the second impact is so are the managers, those underlying managers who relied on sell-side research and the brokers are having to to fund that and take a look at who really is adding value and narrow down on those particular um, brokers. Uh, I think um, that's probably a, a good thing actually for active management and for alpha generation going forward if there's a consolidation amongst the sell side and the pricing and the structure that is still taking shape just a few months in but if we see this consolidation then arguably the more inefficiencies and more opportunities for 
for the managers themselves to, to stock pick and to add value through their, their own desks of, of analysts in-house. One thing we've heard on that point, and if I've understood correctly, is, mm. is it could, though, potentially punish boutiques who don't have the deep resources, who are more dependent on those brokerage firms that are seeing those resources because they're consolidating, they're getting less money through for their research, and boutiques might not have the same level of analytical coverage that a BlackRock, a Goldman Sachs, those companies have. Is that something that you've noticed at all? Have got yeah, so I think there's, there's two ways to address the boutiques question. There's the boutiques on the sell side, the brokers, and I think you know, for those who are really clear and adding value and are valuable to the fund managers, they can thrive in this environment. I think on, in the sense of boutiques amongst asset managers and fund groups, that is a, a very valid question and concern. I think that ultimately the, the increasing amount of compliance and regulatory costs does make it harder for small groups to, to launch and to thrive. Um, but ultimately, we're backing the individuals, their research, their processes, and their skill. Uh, not, you know, backing them to be reliant uh, on sure. the sell side input. So I do think we'll still see, um, you know, the smaller boutiques really doing the fundamental research. Perhaps they have more concentrated portfolios as a result, um, and continue to, to, to exist and to thrive. But it's probably um, tougher. We were talking about the how we react as, as fund selectors to the MIFID um, two. That was the first way. I think the second um, uh, thing that, that we are pleased to see is the requirement for trade reporting. So historically, for equities, which of course is exchange traded, this was very transparent, very clear. You could see the the um, <coughs> pricing and the volumes that were traded, but far less so for fixed income. Uh, that's obviously an over-the-counter market and so we're pleased to see more transparency around trade reporting that allows us to get a better handle on liquidity for fixed income managers to form a clearer view on their capacity and just helps us ever fill out our views and, 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 and opinions on the strengths and weaknesses of the managers that, that we meet. It just fills into that, feeds into that mosaic as we as we as we assess them, have you noticed that already? Have you seen improvement transparency in the companies that you're dealing? With? I think it's, it's still early days. Still too early days to uh, to see that. Okay. Um, the third area is um, possibly um, most important, and that's for the first time the transaction costs, uh, explicit trading costs, have been broken out in a fee schedule. So yes, of course, investors are always paying the cost of trading and commissions and um, and the like and bid ask bid ask spreads, uh, but it wasn't broken out as an explicit number in the costs. It was just wrapped up in the net asset value and the returns. So the MIFID too that needs to be uh, broken out, and so um, that is, is prompted you know, some questions from clients around what appears to be an increase in costs because it's now visible, whereas that's not the case, they've always been bearing those costs within, within, the, within the returns of the fund. So we did a, what I think is an interesting piece of work um, just, just last month, where having got this new MIFID II compliant trading cost data for all the funds on our buy list, and of course the performance for all the funds of our buy list, we wanted to see was there any correlation between the level of trading costs and performance and there was none. 
you know, those managers who perhaps have a style that is higher trading, higher turnover, were just as likely to deliver and outperform as those uh, who were lower turnover. So if I think of examples, you know, EMD, for example, or EM equity that are perhaps more costly, uh, the managers were adding outperformance there just as you know, the, Lins- I guess the, the infamous Linsell train and their low turnover style yeah. Was, was also adding value at That's the other That's really interesting. So this, this historic notion of sort of buy and hold amortization sort mm. of approach, mm. it do, if I, I'm not reading into it because I haven't read the report, yeah. but, but it doesn't make any difference. That's our finding with regards to our buy list. Okay. I, we haven't looked at the wider universe yet. So in some ways, it's I'm comforted that of the funds we have on our buy list, we've all obviously been aware of, of turnover and transactions historically. It's been one of the inputs to our assessment, but regardless our performance has, has come through, it may be different for the whole, the whole fund universe overall, we haven't done that work yet. One of the areas we spoke when we met last summer was about alternative uses, and Barclays mm-hmm. has a lot of work there, and you would yeah. made some changes at that time, you'd moved out some of the London boutiques because it wasn't a shortest market, yes. and this is moving slightly away from the MIF2 question, but it, mm-hmm. sorry, it just came to mind because of the boutiques element of things. Yeah. Have you gone back to any of those, has that position changed at all? We've certainly not gone back to any of those. Um, we're adding, slowly but surely, um, a handful of managers to our fund of hedge fund usage. It's been going nicely. It's over 320 million sterling in size now. and Very good performance, an exceptional sharp ratio actually over the last couple of, of years. Um, and an example of a manager we've added most recently is the Henderson UK Absolute Alpha Fund. Obviously, um, Ben Wallace and New- Newman well-known managers there at the helm, um, liked them for for a while, a number of years, and we've been able to find a space for them now in that in that vehicle in our liquid alternative strategies uh, fund. So that's the most recent change we've made. Can I ask why you added them? Is that just general performance? Or is that a, a comment on the UK market? Is it, What led them to being added to the portfolio? Yeah, it's not so much a comment on the UK market, um, not least because they have increased the universe in which they can select stocks. Of course, stocks they can, away they've got global element now. UK in, in recent years. Um, it, it's more um, looking to continue to keep a low beta and directionality in our fund, and we find that um, product is is actually one of the few funds that do do that, and yet still um, have a reasonable level of volatility. So we, we like reasonable levels of volatility low correlation and low beta so there's not a great deal of funds that that fit that bill and this this fund is one of them and of course you know we observe that the very steady incremental adding of of our performance um, uh, and you know, we, we've um, we look to benefit from that now they're in the fund with um, with that shape and size you talked previously about <coughs> removing the de- directionality and the low beta has that been consistent have you managed to it's been a lot of macro noise, is what I'm trying mm, to say. Have yeah. you managed to insulate the fund to that extent that it hasn't? You've, sorry, like I said before, it's quite a rambling question. But in terms of the actual moving parts of having a fund of funds, mm. have you had to change the weightings much to ensure that that directionality doesn't get out of hand and you don't get pulled along by momentum or pulled in because the US market changes or tech stocks move? Yeah. No, I think we we have done a good job of of lessening the directionality of the fund. So that was particularly pronounced in the. Sort of February, early March wobbles when you know, the fund maintained stroke slightly ticked up in value rather than decreasing as obviously long only equities did. So that was a good test 
of, of the build of the product you're pleased to say that you have some genuine alpha generators in there and they delivered for us at that stage. As we move into the second quarter with what we've seen over the first quarter has been like I said quite volatile, mm. what are you looking out for over the next three months? Are there any sort of headline things that you're focusing on? Is there anything that you're already positioning to defend against really? Yeah. You know, we continue as a as a broader team um, to focus on underlying fundamentals and trying to look at the, the politics and the noise less. And the fundamentals are strong. You know, the house view is very much that the leading indicators and and and, and on the back of that growth, GDP growth, etc., are robust and are uh, strong. Um, Europe coming through, US maintaining that strength. And then parts of Asia as, as geared into the global growth story and big exporters as, 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 as a sweeping statement around some of those countries, harnessing that as well. So it leads us you know, to, to remain to be overweight um, equities, overweight both developed markets and emerging markets. Um, and then within the fixed income complex being overweight, the, the, um, the more volatile areas such as high yield and emerging market debt. Um, we're making room for those positions through being underweight government bonds and investment grade bonds. So that's been our direction of, of travel for some time. We continue to, to set that course for the second quarter and beyond. When we, when we spoke last year, and apologies for continually referencing it, but you were reducing your UK overweight and you were raising your Japan underweight to more of a neutral position. Mm. Um, has that been consistent or has that changed over time? We've seen those markets have changed quite considerably over the space of relative short space of time. We've not altered our UK weighting at all. We're neutral the UK. Um, yes, it's very unloved and yes, there's opportunities in small and mid caps. Um, but for the larger companies, um, you know, there's, there's still um, quite a defensive feel to the UK market. And as I say, we're still quite constructive. And, 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 uh, and orientated towards risk assets more broadly. Um, that point has led us to um, increase our Japanese weighting a little more uh, from underweight to, to neutral now. Um, that is a, a market that's classically geared into cyclicals and geared into global growth. So um, that's what we've done in those, in those two markets. I only mentioned the UK one, I'm always conscious of dating the podcast, mm. but um, today's the anniversary of Article 50, mm. and so the, the, all the conversations we've had this morning have been on Brexit, UK equities, those sorts of things, so it's interesting to hear where you stand currently, and are you likely to make many more changes as we approach the March 2019 deadline? I mean, that's looking well ahead, yeah. I mean, it's almost exactly a year, but are there any signposts or things that you are looking out for as we get nearer to that date? Yeah, I think we, you know, we continue to try and look at the fundamentals, economies and markets, um, rather than the politics so much, look through that, that noise. Um, and I'm pleased to say that given the, the strength in small and mid caps um, year to date in the UK, and uh, the bias that uh, many managers, including ours in UK equities, have to that space, it's been a very um, rich period of performance so far for UK equity managers. In fact, every one of our picks on our buy list has outperformed the FTSE All Share. And my final question I'll ask, just to summarise about Method 2, if there was, and this is, again, I'm not trying to jump anything on mm -hmm. you, if there's anything you could have known before it was implemented that would have been useful now, what would you have liked to have known? 
it can be anything, it, even just a way of deep handling certain documents or the level of interaction or even the level of time it was going to mm. take you to, to get on board with. I think well, the one thing that springs to mind is I would have liked non-European based fund managers to have been cognizant or thought more deeply about the implications and ramifications for them uh, earlier. So I think it's fair to say that a handful of US-based boutiques or Asian-based boutiques who don't have many European clients didn't necessarily see this coming, weren't particularly aware of the regulations. And some of them had to take a view about whether they want to comply with those regulations for the sake of keeping one or two European-based clients who have to comply and looking to continue to grow that book as a business decision or whether to say actually the cost-benefit analysis is such that we're going to withdraw from selling to European clients and they just focus on our US or Asian-based domestic clients who of course aren't impacted by MIFID too. Excellent. Ian, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. Okay, there we have it. A big thank you to Ian and to you for listening as well. Stay tuned for next month's podcast where we get to grips with the pros and cons of the USITS wrapper that we all love so much. So certainly one you won't want to miss, so check back on citywireselector.com or wherever it is you subscribe to your podcast to make sure you don't miss out. Until then, enjoy and I'll see you next time. Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts.